If you have your Bibles, please uh, turn in them to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. Our focus will be on the last uh, three verses, starting at verse 19. But I would like to uh, start reading from uh, verse 9. And there Elijah came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by in a great and strong wind, tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after an earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. When you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint uh, to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So... He, that's Elijah, departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with twelve yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the twelve. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, we believe as we've opened our Bibles that here you have spoken and are speaking still now. But unless you would give us ears to hear, unless you would give us the ears of faith, unless you would give us a heart of faith, unless you would give us the eyes of faith, we cannot see you, we cannot hear you, we cannot uh, embrace or love you. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would uh, minister amongst us now, giving us faith, giving us sight, so that we might be uh, built up uh, into further maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So it was uh, 472 years ago this Saturday 
that Hugh Latimer, the English reformer, on a wet and stormy day in London, preached his most well-known sermon, the Sermon of the Plow. The England that Latimer had grown up in uh, had been a place of great spiritual darkness. The Church of England, or, or the Church in England, was infected by uh, Roman Catholicism, which taught a, a salvation by works scheme, and uh, was the land was filled with a, a corrupt clergy who abused their positions. Now, there had been some positive developments in the church in Latimer's day. The Church of England had broken away from Rome. There were certain men like Latimer and his uh, colleague, um, uh, Thomas Cramner, who were working to reform uh, the church so that its teaching and practice aligned more closely with the scriptures. And then there was uh, King Edward, the 11-year-old boy king who had been on the throne less than a year, uh, but who was making himself known as an agent for reformation in the church. But the church remained infected by its old ways in many uh, places because preachers and teachers in the church were more concerned with entertaining and indulging themselves than they were with feeding God's people from God's word. The church in many places in England uh, was starving. And so it was that in Latimer's uh, sermon on the plow, he called out the clergy uh, and the preachers and the bishops. He said that their work was uh, to be God's spiritual plowmen. They were to be working among uh, God's people, sowing the seed uh, of God's word as they preached. Uh, but Latimer said, rather than doing this and giving themselves to this work, they spent their time in self-indulgence. Latimer uh, so lamented the condition of the churches that he said the most diligent bishop in the Church of England, the one who gave himself most diligently in the work of plowing, was none other than Satan himself. For though Satan uh, did not sow the word of God, he was zealous to sow the devilish seed among the people. As Latimer looked out uh, at the church, he saw uh, in it a great spiritual sickness in many places, and with the negligence of those who were called to lead the people, it would have been easy to be discouraged. Where were the preachers? Latimer and his colleagues were uh, in their twilight years. I believe Latimer was 70 when he preached uh, this sermon of the plow. If there weren't diligent ministers of God's word, what would become of godly religion in the land? Would God go silent in England? Well, the situation was similar, though certainly more dire in Elijah's day. Whereas Latimer had hopes that Edward, a God-fearing king, would do some good in England, the king and queen in Elijah's day were the chief opponents of the worship of God in Israel. When we last looked several weeks ago at 1 Kings 19, we saw that God's prophet uh, Elijah despaired of life itself because even though God had worked miraculously at Mount Carmel, uh, idolatry remained entrenched in the hearts of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel, and so it continued to plague the land. It was on Mount Horeb uh, that we read that Elijah laments before the Lord that Israel had forsaken his covenant, that they had thrown down his altars, that they had killed his prophets with the sword. And Elijah says, and I, even I only am left. And they seek to take my life away. 
To Elijah, it seemed as if the cause of God in Israel was hanging by a single strained thread. Now that we might grasp the significance of our passage this evening, we need to take a step back and we need to consider the significance of Israel. Israel wasn't just any nation, you see. Israel had a special significance. After our first parents, Adam and Eve, uh, fell into sin, God initiated a special rescue operation. He promised a Savior uh, would come to restore man's relationship with God, to destroy the devil, uh, and to heal the world that had come under the curse of sin. And in the book of Genesis, we see that the groundwork of God's plan being laid as God chooses Abraham, and he says that it was through Abraham that he would bless the nations and bring the blessings of salvation. Abraham's offspring would be the vehicle through whom God brought this rescuer. And it's Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who's, the, who, uh, who's renamed Israel, who uh, uh, is... Uh, it makes, God makes clear, uh, the one through whom this promised one would come. So Israel wasn't just any nation. It was the people whom God had attached the promises of salvation to. It was in these people that the promises of salvation hinged. If God abandoned Israel, if, uh, it was as if he would uh, abandon the whole plan to rescue sinners and redeem the world. If Israel was cut off, it was to abort the whole salvation project which God had been advancing. It was to cancel God's promises about what he would do to heal the world. So the fact that the spiritual condition in Israel was so dismal, so bleak, this was a big deal. It was bigger than just Elijah. What would happen if God went silent in Israel? if the worship of the Lord was allowed to die out with Elijah. But God gave his reassurances to Elijah at Mount Horeb. Yes, Israel had broken its covenant with the Lord, but God told Elijah God was still at work. He told Elijah that he would judge the faithless in Israel through three men, Hazael of of Syria, Jehu of, of Israel, and Elisha. As God had warned Israel in the book of Deuteronomy, he would judge them. But he also comforts Elijah, and he says that God would preserve a faithful remnant, 7,000 faithful ones in Israel. God's intention was to comfort Elijah as he despaired at the condition of God's people. And he wanted to do this by telling him, Elijah, I'm not done with Israel yet. Regardless of how dark things have gotten in Israel, I am at work to judge faithlessness and to preserve faithfulness so that my promises of salvation will be kept through Israel. So as we come to our, our passage this evening, I think it's, it's vitally important for us to, to have this in mind, to, to situate Elisha's call within this bigger storyline of what God is doing. Otherwise, if we, if we come to this passage and we focus just on this passage itself, I think that we'll miss the comfort that God is extending to the church here. If we look at this passage just by itself, we'll see this passage, first of all, about how God calls us to serve Him. And this becomes then a, a pretty decent sermon on discipleship. How does God call you? How are you to respond to God's call? 
And while I think that this story uh, helps us with those questions, and we will consider them, Elisha's call is about more than just that. Elisha's call is not, first of all, about Elisha's commitment or about our commitment. It's not, first of all, about what Elisha is to do or what we are to do, but the central figure in this story is the one most hidden, God. Who's not mentioned in these verses, the, the main point of this story is not our need, uh, for our, our, our need for our commitment to God, but the certainty of God's commitment to his promises and his people. Our story shows us God's unwavering commitment to his promises, his unwavering commitment to his people, even amidst the idolatry and apostasy in Israel. We see that God's commitment to his, his covenant purposes as he provides a prophetic successor to Elijah. We see God's commitment to his purposes as he provides a successor to Elijah who will bring God's words of judgment and grace to his people. It's in the call of Elisha, a divine spokesperson, that we see that God is committed to his plan to bring salvation to the world through his people. So this evening we'll look more closely at God's call to Elisha and at Elisha's response to God. But as we do that, and and as we do that, we'll consider what this means for our own response of discipleship. But more importantly, we'll see in God's provision of a messenger that this is is evidence that God was and, and remains committed to his cause, to his purposes of grace and judgment. Now, as we begin our study of these verses, we uh, need to look at God's call, and more specifically, we need to look at whom, uh, to whom God's call came. These verses are our introduction to Elisha. We don't know a lot about Elisha's background. Uh, we know that he's the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mahola. Uh, Abel Mahola is likely located halfway between uh, the Sea of Galilee and the, Jordan, or, and, and the Dead Sea uh, along the Jordan River. And we see that Elisha's family was uh, wealthy, as, as uh, is noted by the fact that Elisha had 12 yoke of oxen. But that basically is, is all that we know about Elisha. But it's all that we need to know about Elisha because his significance lay not in his, his background, uh, but with how God was determined that he would work through this farmer to advance his purposes for his people. And it's while Elisha was engaged in in his everyday work as a farmer that the call of God suddenly breaks in and interrupts Elisha's life entirely. Elisha wasn't waiting around for uh, God to do something. He had a job and he was faithfully doing it. And that's so oftentimes the way that God's call comes. It comes to the person faithfully engaged in the work that he's been given. Think of Moses. What's he doing when God's call comes? He's tending his father-in-law's sheep. Gideon is threshing wheat when the angel of the Lord calls him to be a judge over Israel. David is serving as a shepherd to his father's flocks. And so it is that we see Elisha. He's conducting the family business. He's diligently plowing the fields when God calls. I think it's an important reminder uh, to remind ourselves that it is, in fact, God who is calling although God's not mentioned in, in, in the call itself. From Elisha's vantage, as, as he received this call, this would have seen, seemed sudden. It would have been surprising. 
One moment he's plowing the fields, working for dad, and the next moment Elijah, the one of Mount Carmel fame, uh, the most hated man uh, on Jezebel's most wanted list, Elijah's throwing his cloak on Elisha and telling him he's called to the ministry. But this is a call from God. might be a surprise to Elisha, Elisha, but God had planned it. Back when uh, Elijah spoke with God at Mount Horeb, we see that the Lord said that Elisha should be set apart as Elijah's successor. It was all part of God's plan. But at this point, we need to ask more specifically, to what was Elisha being called? He was called to both an office, the office of, of prophet, but he was also called to a specific type of ministry. Elisha was called as as Elijah's successor, so he fills Elijah's sandals, but what exactly is he supposed to do? Well, when we looked at 1 Kings 19 uh, several weeks ago, I I highlighted for you uh, the fact that Elijah was in many ways a a second type of of Moses. Like Moses, uh, God called Elijah to be a prophet to his often wandering people. Uh, Both uh, men were miraculously stained over a 40-day period without food. Elijah, like Moses, met with the Lord on Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai, as it was otherwise called. So we're meant to understand Elijah is a a Moses-type figure. Only while Moses received the the, the call to uh, give God's covenant uh, to God's people, to give God's law to his people, Elijah's role was to call God's people back to that covenant to live faithfully within that relationship. We might call Elijah, he was like a a covenant compliance officer. Just like a a pastor or a counselor might call a married person back to uh, their marital vows and back to their spouse, so Elijah's job was to call Israel back to God and back to faithfulness within that relationship. So if we're supposed to see Elijah as a, a, a second Moses, it means that Elisha as Elijah's successor, is like a second Joshua. Joshua had been Moses' assistant. He had succeeded uh, Moses as the leader of God's people. And Joshua's mission was to lead God's people into the promised land. And he was meant to, to purge the land of the idolatry of the Canaanites. Joshua's ministry was one both of gracious deliverance as he led the people in, but also one of judgment upon the wickedness and idolatry that was in the land. And I think to see Elisha's ministry as as an echo of Joshua helps us to make sense of what Elisha is being called to do. In verses 16 and 17, Elisha's ministry is clearly uh, identified as to have a ministry of judgment. So like Joshua, Elisha was to play a role in, in bringing idolatry in the land under judgment. But in what sense would we say Elisha was carrying out a a ministry of judgment? If you know anything about Elisha's life, you know that God did many wondrous things through him. Uh, It seems that he's often a ministry of mercy, uh, or a minister of mercy. But uh, So we see he, he provides miraculously for widows. He raises the dead. He feeds the hungry. He heals the sick. So when we see that, this seems hardly like a ministry of judgment. And yet that's exactly what it is. For here God was powerfully at work through Elijah or through Elisha and Israel would still not turn from their idolatry. Elisha's ministry was one of, of showing the power and kindness of God so vividly, so powerfully 
that it left idolatrous Israel without excuse. Sort of brings to mind the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 2. Paul speaks there of his ministry as being uh, the fragrance of the knowledge of Jesus. And through Paul's ministry, people came into contact with the fragrance of Christ Jesus, but this fragrance was to some uh, the fragrance of life to those who believed, but to others it was a fragrance of death to those who would reject him. Paul, as a a messenger of Christ, is at the same time, he's, he's a messenger of life to some and a messenger of death to others. And so it is with Elisha's ministry. God would act powerfully to extend life uh, to people through his prophet. But the implication of this is that those who remained in their idolatry were brought under severe condemnation. God had warned his people when he established his covenant with them that to chase after other gods was to, to come under a curse. And since Israel would not respond to God's ministry through Elisha, it meant uh, that judgment would come to, uh, by the means of, of exile to idolatrous Israel. They would be evicted, just like the Canaanites before them from the land. So whether Elisha knew it at the time or not, and, and I suspect he didn't know fully what his ministry would be, God's call on Elisha, on, on his life, was uh, about uh, calling God's people back to the covenant. But it was a ministry of judgment as well as, as of grace. So when the call comes to Elisha, Elisha responds definitively. He leaves his oxen, he catches up to Elijah, he says goodbye to his parents, he sacrifices his oxen, and he goes and follows Elijah. But what are we to make of Elijah's request? He says, let me kiss, <clears throat> let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. It sounds like Elijah is, is the same sort of man that we read about in Luke chapter 9. The man who comes to Jesus and says, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me say uh, goodbye to those at home. And there, Jesus responds to the man's request. He responds by rebuking the man, saying that no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So is this a case of Elisha putting his hand to the plow and looking back? Well, No. While there are certainly similarities between these two passages, the attitudes of Elisha here, and that would-be disciple in Luke 9, are quite different. In Luke 9, the man is one of three people Jesus encounters who uh, uh, has not considered the cost of following Jesus. He's not considered what it means to follow in the way of the cross. And so when this man wishes to say goodbye to those who are at home, He, just like the others who have applied to be Jesus' disciples, he's failed to understand that to follow Jesus demands our highest allegiance. There is no misunderstanding, though, on Elisha's part. There appears no mistake in his mind that uh, this call has, has come to him, and it would demand his life, it would demand his soul, it would demand his all. The would-be disciple in Luke 9 wishes to return home because his affections are, are, are divided between following after Jesus and the comforts of home. But Elisha, as Dale Ralph Davis puts it, returns home not to hold back, but to cut loose. In Luke 9, Davis writes, saying goodbye is an obstacle to kingdom commitment. But in 1 Kings 19, Elisha going home, it it serves as his entry into kingdom service. 
Now, when asked, Elijah, Elijah doesn't stop Elisha from returning home. And why should he? When Elisha uh, wants to, to return home, he's taking the decisive steps to go all in. The cost of accepting God's call is one that demands complete devotion. There's no fence straddling. There's no uh, uh, bet hedging here. Actually, rather than failing the Luke 9 test, Elisha shows us that, uh, uh, what commitment to God actually looks like when we respond to his call. Because when he returns home to mom and dads, he tells them of his encounter with Elijah, and he, intends, uh, he says that he intends to go and follow him. I um, recently had the chance to take up again the autobiography of, of the missionary uh, John Payton, who was a missionary in the 1800s uh, in the South Pacific. And after a brief return home to Scotland, he had to say goodbye uh, to his parents. And he writes in his biography that, that, that he prayed with his parents. And then he said, I knew to a certainty that when we rose from our knees and said farewell, our eyes would never meet again till they were flooded with the lights of the resurrection day. But my father and my darling mother gave us away once again with a free heart not, uh, not unpierced with the sword of human anguish to the service of our common Lord. It's a, a tearful scene that, that Peyton puts forward as his parents send him off in service to God. And perhaps uh, Peyton's words help us to, to imagine the scene when Elisha tells his parents that he needs to go and follow Elijah. He knows the cost of accepting God's call, In accepting it, he's said farewell to parents. He said farewell to the security and comfort of his job, to his family fortunes. Elisha is giving this all up so that he could be a prophet in training for Israel's most hated man. And nevertheless, Elisha slaughters his oxen. There's no turning back. His bridges, not to mention his plows, have been burned. He set his hand to the plow, and he has no intention of turning back. But our text also tells us that Elisha doesn't burn his bridges begrudgingly. Elisha seems to commit himself gladly to God's call. He sacrifices his oxen, and what does he do? He holds a farewell feast. Now, maybe Elisha didn't know all the difficulties that would come with his new calling, But he certainly would have known that following uh, Elijah around the country would not have been a a cushy assignment. But this doesn't seem to matter to Elisha. God has called him to special service, and so this was cause for celebration in Elisha's mind. Incidentally, as we're uh, approaching the time of of, uh, electing office bearers here, I wonder whether uh, any of the men who are, are chosen uh, will celebrate by going to Costco and buying the biggest, tenderest steak they can find so they can properly celebrate that God has uh, seen fit that they should minister to his people through them. Right, when God calls his people to service, uh, it's a serious thing. It often comes with a lot of hardship, but Elisha, uh, his response is to show us that it's also a joyful thing a reason to celebrate uh, uh, that God has called us to serve his people. But lest we have any reason for being uh, puffed up, we need to note one last thing about Elisha's response to the call. Elisha's call was a, 
a reason for rejoicing, uh, but it didn't provide him with much opportunity for boasting. Because our chapter concludes, Then Elisha arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. God's special call on Elisha begins with placing him in the role of a servant. 2 Kings 3.11 tells us that Elisha was known as the one who washed Elijah's hands. He was his personal uh, attendant. He was Elijah's intern. There was nothing glamorous to be found in this role. But how fitting it is. Again, another uh, comparison, comparison to Joshua, who served as Moses' assistant before stepping into uh, another position of leadership. Think of, of Jesus who instructed his disciples on the path of discipleship. He said it was, uh, uh, to, be a, to be a disciple was not to, to uh, be an exercise in self-exaltation, but it was to be an exercise in humility and service. He tells his disciples that they are to follow after his own example as one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Matthew Henry, the Puritan commentator, uh, says of these verses, those that would be fit to teach must have time to learn, and those that hope hereafter to rise and rule must be willing at first to stoop and serve. When God calls us to serve, whether well, it's a pastor or elder, deacon, small group leader, whatever the case might be, whatever the role it is that God has called you to, to accept it rightly is to embrace the role of a servant. So what does uh, God's call to Elisha show us? Although the, uh, God's call to Elisha was unique, there are principles at work here uh, that need to shape the thinking of every Christian disciple. Though we're not prophets in the sense that Elisha was, God does call every Christian to a life of discipleship. And a response is called for from us. The call to discipleship is a costly call to absolute commitment. It's a call, whatever it might look like in our particulars, it's a call to be celebrated. It's a call to humble service. This is the way of Christ. But while Elisha's call does challenge us at the level of our commitment, I think when we situate this story in, its, in the bigger story of what God is doing through Israel, we find that this is a pa- passage actually intended to comfort God's people. Our text shows us God's commitment to his covenant cause, and, and he shows us this by raising up a man who will bring his word of judgment and grace to his people. This is a text that first of all shows us not something about the commitment that we are to make, but the commitment that God keeps. It's a commitment that he's kept throughout the scripture, and it's a commitment that he continues to keep today. In Elisha's call, we're meant to see God's commitment to his purposes, and we're meant to see that and be encouraged and emboldened. Certainly, this was the the effect that God wanted this to have in the life of despairing Elijah. Need to remember, Elijah was in a season of despair when he looked out at God's people. God's name was being profaned, his worship neglected, his messengers slain. Elijah's under the impression that he is the only prophet of God left in Israel. 
So how could Israel be the instrument for God bringing the blessings of salvation to the world if godly religion in Israel was suffocated by idolatry, by apostasy? And so how does God encourage poor Elijah? He encourages Elijah by raising up another prophet. He raises up in a manner of speaking. He raises up a preacher. Why? Because it was a sign to Elijah that God wasn't about to forsake his plan of salvation through his people. If we look at the broader church in this country, there's uh, much spiritual weakness to be grieved. Uh, There's uh, the idolatry which infects the church, an idolatry of, of comfort, of entertainment, of money, of sex, and self. There's a low view of holiness. There's a poor understanding of Scripture. There's a, a, a lack of zeal. And if we look at our own hearts, it's likely to serve as a reminder of just how needy and ill-deserving the church is. Maybe reasons for despair. But as we see Elisha's call, regardless of the state of God's people, we see that God has a fixed commitment to fulfill His purposes. And that should be a great comfort for us. Now, while Elisha certainly has a unique place in God's story, don't we see, even today, God's commitment to His plan of salvation highlighted? When today, He provides for His church. When He calls men to preach. When God, through the church, calls a man to preach. Now, while this man won't won't have the same ministry as Elisha, God is underscoring for his church. He's underscoring that he is absolutely committed to fulfilling his purposes of salvation through his people. In Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul tells us that Jesus, having died and been raised and ascended into heaven, he gives gifts to his church. He gives, among other things, shepherds and teachers to to bring God's word to God's people so that God's purposes might be realized. God raises up pastors and teachers as an expression of his commitment, even today, as faint echoes of Elisha's call to bring his purposes of salvation to completion, that God is completely committed to that. When God calls a man to bring God's word to God's people, we can uh, think this is not just some sort of uh, neat thing that is happening. We shouldn't think first of the man. We shouldn't think first of the office to whom he's called. We should think of the one who calls and be reminded God is committed to seeing his plan of salvation realized in all its fullness. He's committed to his word. Uh, He's committed to bringing life to his elect, and he's committed to bringing judgment on those who will not heed his voice. I wonder if we can, can think of that and be reminded when we see God in the church raising up men, trained for ministry. Here at Harvest, we, we have the privilege of, of having several men training for gospel ministry. If God would call them to be preachers, it's not just something for for them. It's not just uh, the same as if if they had graduated from med school, although that'd be a great accomplishment. 
When God calls a man to preach, when he raises him up, prepares him, uh, and puts him in a place where he can bring God's word to God's people, we should be first of all reminded that God is committed to his purposes of salvation. He is committed to seeing that through to the end, and we should give thanks that God has made this provision. It's a provision by which God says to his people, no matter how the vitality of the church may ebb or flow, God says to his church, I am resolute in my purpose to keep my promises for my people. So as we look today, there might be, we might see as God's people, we might be grieved at some of the things that we see outside our walls and, and, and within our walls and within our own hearts as we see the condition of the church. But we need to, to see, first of all, God's complete, total commitment to seeing his purposes through the end. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a God who does not quit, that um, every work that you start, you bring to completion. You never get halfway through your plans and then uh, decide that it's not going to work. You never get halfway through your plans and uh, give up. But the plan of salvation which you uh, have begun, uh, or which you began, uh, um, what we see in the first pages of, of Scripture after the fall, Lord, you will bring that to completion. We thank you, Lord, that even though uh, the, the uh, strength and purity of your church may wax and wane, you are committed to seeing that your word would go forth. As we think of this call and how it was intended to encourage, first of all, Elijah, and then us, might we be reminded of the fact that you are a God who is always at work. And you will uh, bring about your purposes through your church of salvation. We give you all the praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.